This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome everybody to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. I'm intense. I'm Dr. <laughs> I'm Dr. Mike Todorovich and I'm joined by my colleague Dr. Matt Barton. How are you, Matt? Is it just because you had a coffee? I just had a coffee and a couple of shortbreads. So I've now pumped with sugar and caffeine and today we're going to talk about... Oh, stop doing that. People are going to switch off. Today we're talking about tissues. So not Kleenex tissues, Matthew, which you were thinking, um, but tissues of the body, the four tissue types of the body. Okay. Now, we know- Important topic. It's usually at the front end of an A&P course. That's true. So I'm not sure why we're doing this, you know, five years into it. (laughs) Because, Matthew, podcasts are not a sequential beast. People can listen to this podcast at the very beginning of their course or they can listen to it at the very end or they don't even need to listen to it at all or they don't even need to be a student to listen to this. Or they finished their course four years ago. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Uh, This is a long time coming. You know, we could have done this or should have probably done this about three years ago. But you're right. Tissues are an important topic of conversation when it comes to biology. They usually sit at the front end of a biology course. And when we look at tissues, what we need to think about are the cells of the body. And when how, many, how many cells in the body? Individual cells or types of cells? Individuals. Uh, around about 30 trillion okay. and around about 200 types of so, cells. So what does that mean? So 30 trillion gets condensed into 200 groups? That's right. 200 okay. groups by... Um, function. What was the paper that was just recently 
released with or study they just released in terms of they've kind of quantified all the cell types in the body. Uh, Histologically, I, I don't actually read every paper that's no, ever been should. published. So, uh, no, I don't know that paper. Please tell us. That's about as much as I know. Oh, you didn't read they, it either. They just—I just saw the headlines in you know one of those uh, science alert, yeah. um, you know, databases. That and what did it say? Basically, it was just saying that all the body cells have been quantified into groups in the body. Yeah, histologically. Okay. And was it around about two hundred? Um, I don't believe so. Oh, so I'm wrong. No, I think that – I don't know how they actually did it. I think they just looked at the, all the, you know, the main um, organs and – yeah, maybe organ systems and looked at the the components with each organ system and then they kind of – they had abilities to do certain um, histological markers where they could clearly, objectively measure these cells apart from each other. Wow, that's it's interesting. Kind of like an encyclopedia now for the body. Histologically. Yeah, histologically. Not functionally, mm. histologically. Well, if you were to take the cells of the body and you were to group them functionally, mm-hmm. that's how we get tissues. Right. So, so so basically what you've done is our 30 trillion cells in our body, yep. you can then group them into 200 categories mm-hmm. based on what similar functioning. Yeah. Okay. So things like nerve cells- uh, muscle cells, um, bone cells, mm-hmm. things like that. Yep. And then from those 200, you can further condense them into four groups of tissue. Is that right? That's right. When they work together, together. toward a similar function, okay. that group of cells forms a tissue. Okay. And there's four tissues. And so it'll make more sense, obviously, when we start to say what those four tissues are, which are epithelial tissue, connective tissue, muscle tissue and nervous tissue. And so, for example, if we take nervous tissue, you know, you've got neurons, that's one cell type. Yep. Uh, you've got uh, ependymal cells, that's another cell type, astrocytes. So there's a glia. You know, they're, but they're all nervous cells. cells, right? Mm. So you've got a whole bunch of different cells that perform different functions, but cumulatively together, they all have a similar function, which is for that of communication. And that is nervous tissue. Right. And the same thing goes when you look at um, epithelial cells. You know, there's different types of epithelial cells, but when they come together, they form barriers and boundaries of the body. With connective tissue, they come together. Um, they hold things, bind things, anchor things. And when you've got muscle tissue, these cells come together to allow for work to be performed or movement to occur. And so that's how we broadly classify these four tissue types of the body. Okay. Um, So I think what we should do is because we've done an episode pretty much on each one of these tissues in depth, we should just do this as an introduction, uh, introductory podcast. We've done- A couple of nervous ones, a couple of muscle, um, haven't done epithelia- Okay. Haven't done connective, yeah, but we right. will. Yeah, okay. We will, listener. We will so do we, a whole so episode. So basically what you're saying, we're not going to go into human, too much depth, but cover them in enough detail that it's a good introductory, um, uh, not investigation, but uh, to be fair, j- pro- journey. Yeah, it'll be probably enough for you to pass your exam. That's not a guarantee, by the <laughs> way, but it probably would be enough. Um, so I think let's start with the two that we've actually already done podcasts on, which is nervous tissue and muscle tissue. Okay. So I think let's start with nervous tissue. And so again, nervous tissue, its job is for communication. 
Okay. And the communication it performs is high speed, very quick, very direct, point A to point B. Um, and uh, it's – obviously there's other tissues, there's, there's other um, regions, areas of the body like the endocrine yes, system. that's communication. Which is also communication. Yep. But the difference is that nervous system has nervous tissue like neurons and glia, for yep. example – which allow for it to perform its function and it's direct, it's fast okay, um, and, and so forth. So firstly, nervous tissue, the cell types right. within the nervous tissue because all of these tissues will have specific cell types uh, which help make it what it is. So we said neurons mm-hmm. are the ones that send the signals yep. and then the glia- Support them. Is the, which means glue in Greek, they're the supporting cells for the neurons. Okay. What do you think we should tell the audience about? Now, the audience should know that we just do this off the top of our head. So what, <laughs> we have today anyway. What, what do you think uh, the audience needs to know about neurons and glia relevant to the t- this tissue type? So I think you've, you've um, you know, introduced it well. So nervous system, like you said, its function as a tissue is to communicate because the cell, the, the body, the human body is, you know, it's a multicellular organism and it's not like every cell is right next to each other there's distances particularly um me compared to you there's a lot longer distances to go from the brain to the foot whereas yours is only two 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 foot whereas (laughs) mine's six foot wow you got six feet wow (laughs) so um there is distance that you have to get information from Mm. and to so that's its kind of overall function now the cells like you mentioned, can be broken into two. But let's start with probably the most important one out of the bunch is the neuron, which is the cell that is excitable. Um, it sends the stimulus as electricity. I know you're going to pull me up with that because it's not true, right? It's not true, but that's okay. It's a electrochemical yeah. change. Is that yeah. fair? Yeah, I always – because everyone always says, oh, we've got electricity cursing through <laughs> our body, and we don't, and I've said it before, but it's not like a wire – where you've got electrons playing hot potato, bumping into each other, going down the wire, mm-hmm. a neuron- It's just electrical chemical change it's, a- across the membrane. Yeah, ions like sodium and potassium and yep. calcium and so forth are either jumping into or out of the cell. Okay. But they're doing it in a domino-like fashion that, yep. that travels down the neuron and that's the signal it sends. But that's by the by, you're right, neurons are the ones that are sending the signal. So let's say we wanted to move your- um, quadricept yeah you would have a neuron and this is very simplified but you would have a neuron a motor neuron that would originate in a part of your brain the motor cortex and that would send this is the same cell send a long projection of that cell all the way down kind of the ballpark to your you know the end of your spinal cord where it would then meet its other friend to to continue this electrochemical what's the other friend um, motor neuron two, okay. which we call the lower motor neuron. Yeah. Okay. So the way that it sends this signal is just by exchanging these ions all the way down this long one cell, which is quite fascinating, really, isn't it? That's all done by one cell, and part of the way it does that is just on its membrane, because we know cells have this outer covering thing around it, and that's basically just changing the way that these um, ions move across it. Now, do we want to go into any more detail about the neuron itself? Or is that kind I of- think what we should say is obviously you've got the neurons, that's the cell that performs all the 
um, activities when it comes to sending the signals yep. and those signals can go up or down. They can ascend up to the brain for it to make sense or they can send it down like you just said for movement or activity. Um, and then you've got all the supporting cells that help neurons. And so these supporting cells, like we alluded to, are called glia and there's many different types. So you've got, depending on whether you're in the central nervous system or peripheral nervous system, you know, you've got uh, Schwann cells, you've got oligodendrocytes, ependymal cells, astrocytes. Uh, can you think of any others? What's, should we quickly just mention- Satellite when, cells. Mention when they fit in along the process? Or is, sure. that, is that going to neuro? No, I think because that's okay. all we're going to finish on and then okay. we'll move on to, okay. to muscle. So I think it, let's just start with the central nervous system, right? Yep. If you take a look at the glia of the central nervous system, yep. you were saying that that neuron needs to have a covering. Um, yeah, so a lot of that um, signal that's sent from the start of your brain down to the end of your spinal cord, um, most of the cell that is carrying that electrochemical change is on a part of the cell called the axon. Okay, and so that's a long distance that has to travel. Mm. Okay, so we need to try and make that speed super fast. And the way it does is you insulate it. Similar to, you know, power cords, they have that insulation around it so you don't lose the the charge outside the, the wire. So it's in a kind of similar way to that. We have this outer fatty insulation that wraps around the axons. And in the central nervous system, it's done by... Um, oligodendrocytes. Yep. But in the peripheral nervous system, so this is outside the spinal cord brain, it's done by a different glia, which we call a Schwann cell. So you've got neurons, obviously, all throughout the body, those in the central nervous system, which is brain and spinal cord, yep. uh, brain, brain, stem, spinal cord, and then peripheral nervous system, which are all the nerves that shoot out and away and shoot back into back the in. brain, brain, stem, and spinal cord. And you're saying that the, all of the nerves, regardless of central or peripheral, yep. are surrounded by this myelin sheath, this, this yeah, coating, they're right? axons. They're axons. So that's the, the axons are? The, this is the carrying part of the signal. So it, the axons are covered by it, but you're saying that the glia that create this covering are actually different from yep. being in the central nervous system to the peripheral. Yep. Why are they different? That's a good, que- <laughs> that's a good question. Why don't um, oligodendrocytes yeah. wrap in the peripheral and why don't Schwann cells wrap in the central? Uh, I'm guessing it comes down to embryology. That would be my guess. Mm. And um, you should know that. Should. As the listeners yeah. know, you don't shut up about embryology. So. Well, I haven't had a chance to talk about it for a long time. So uh, about a, it. A, a Schwann cells- Do you know? I don't actually know. It's a good Schwann question. Schwann cells of a different embryological origin to oligodendrocytes? Neurocrest cells, uh, Schwann cells, oligodendrocytes. Mesoderm? <sighs> now you're testing me. No, I think it's neural tube. But I'm happy to be. It would have to be. I'm happy to be fact checked. Due to embryology, but regardless, take home message here is that axons of the central nervous system covered by oligodendrocytes, and those of the peripheral are Schwann cells. Yeah, and and, um, an interesting difference here is when the nerve gets injured. So this is part of my research. Um, If you get an injured nerve in the periphery, so let's say you were to cut a whole lot of axons in a nerve, let's say like a median nerve that's in your going down to your forearm. If you cut straight through that nerve and cut a whole, you know, thousand axons, if you can somehow repair it pretty well, the Schwann cells are actually got a good ability to um, allow those axons to um, regenerate and re-innovate and you get back good function. Okay. Okay. But if you do the same in the spinal cord, just cut it, the oligodendrocytes, 
for whatever reason, aren't very efficient at allowing those axons to regenerate or go back to their targets. They kind of block it up mm. and therefore the outcome's terrible. Interesting. And that's where spinal cord injury generally has a much poorer outcome. Do we know why? Why they do that? Yeah, so why, why is it okay to regenerate peripheral but not central? Um. <laughs> You're asking tough questions. Is it a, is it a, well, these are the questions that people want to know, but is it, <laughs> is, it a, is it a protective mechanism because centrally such it's so important that if you have any regen, incorrect or poor regeneration centrally, the deficits could be huge if it happened incorrectly, right? So if you, mm. if you damaged a part of the brain, for example, yep. and then you expect the regeneration to occur, yet the wiring buggers up, the potential downstream effects if it didn't happen properly would be significant. So it's probably safer to not regenerate and just rely on other neurons to take up the slack, right? right? But peripherally, because these neurons are dedicated to certain muscles and sensory organs of the periphery, you have to regenerate. You can't rely on other neurons because they're so dispersed to pick up the slack. Does that make sense? That's how I've always thought Mm. the reason why that was the case. Definitely the, the injury – we're going way off straight, way off track a bit today, but that's all right. Um, definitely the injury at the injury site when it's a peripheral nerve injury, it's definitely less complex when it comes to like the cells involved and um, mm. what's happening. But whereas in a spinal cord injury, you know, it gets highly complicated. Yeah. You know, a whole lot of different cells come in, you know, you've got – microglia, which we'll talk about. You've got astrocytes and you've got all the immune cells and it, it gets really messy, messy, yeah, literally. And that impedes its ability to regenerate. Whereas um, in comparison, I mean, Schwann cells actually do phagocytosin. Whereas what does that mean? They eat, they eat, eat up debris, whereas yeah. I don't believe oligodendrocytes have that capacity. Gotcha. Well, that's a big difference. Yeah. yeah. So, you know. I don't know. It's a really good question. And when you compare it to, and this go again goes into our area of research, when you compare it to the area in the nose, which gets damaged every day, yeah. it has a very good ability to um, clean it up and repair it. But are those neurons central nervous system neurons or peripheral nervous system? Well, their projections is peripherally, but, but okay. they would be sitting centrally, but they're projections into the nasal mucosa. So are they covered by Schwann cells or oligodendrocytes? Well, they actually got a, a different type, which is um, the OECs. Olfactory and sheathing cells. Yeah, yeah. which so comes from a, a brother of Schwann cells. So they come out of the neurocrest cell. Okay, so yeah. a brother of a peripheral nervous system yeah. glia. And okay, that, and that, and let's that, digress. And that again goes into our research, which we're looking at using those cells in spinal cord injury. All right, I think we've digressed enough there. Um because it's already 16, 17 <laughs> minutes into it and we've, we're, this is supposed to be one of the quick ones that no, we That's okay, it. that's okay. Uh, it's, it's interesting. Though. It is. Look, the other glia that students need to be aware of, because it's part of the, the, t- yep. the nervous tissue, so we do need to go through these glia, is um, let's keep talking centrally. So we said yep. oligodendrocytes. Uh, centrally ependymal cells. Yeah, so they, they kind of line the, the CSF, so the the fluid part of your brain. So you ha- we have this fluid in our brain called cerebral spinal fluid that kind of bathes our central nervous system, makes it buoyant so the brain's not heavy. It's like sitting in a bath and just floating around like like the brains in, the, um, in Futurama. Oh, yeah. Um, so they're in that kind of fluid uh, and that fluid's called CSF, but they 
probably move that along. They have got kind of cilia. They push it along. But where is this? This um, is in the ventricles, right? Ventricles, but also the aqueducts and so forth. Where? So all the hollowed out portions of the brain, in spinal which cord. would have been the, the center of the neural tube. Yeah. Correct. That's right. Well done. Well done. So That's the way I very teach, accurate. Thank you, sir. The way I teach my students is, you know, you get an A4 piece of paper and you roll it up and you look through it and looking through the middle of this A4 piece of and paper. And that's Mike's lecture on embryology. I'm like, the end. <laughs> well, this is my extent of embryo- embryological knowledge. Uh, the, the hollowed inside of this piece of paper is ultimately throughout embryological development going to create the ventricles and the cerebral aqueducts and so forth, all those hollowed out portions. And so lining that are the ependymal cells and they take blood plasma, filter it through whatever filtration process they use to then create cerebral spinal fluid that they then flush through. Mm. So they make, it, they make it like in the choroid plexuses and then they also push it through, yeah. And, uh, and the, the choroid plexuses are, so, yeah, so it pushes it through to different layers of the meninges as well. Yeah, so you've got the, it's just kind the of like, subarachnoid yeah. space yeah. is going to have cerebral spinal fluid in it as well. And so anyway, the point is ependymal cells, which are glia, produce cerebral spinal fluid. Yep. It helps, like you said, make the brain buoyant, washes away toxins, helps replenish metabolites, plays a really important nutrients. role. All, all the Im- important stuff. They, they found that um, mice um, that, they, that they didn't allow s- to sleep properly um, had volume changes of their cerebral spinal fluid and they had a buildup of metabolites over time. So s- sleeping allows for you to create new cerebral spinal fluid and flush away these metabolites uh, and it is potentially one of the reasons why if you don't get enough sleep you feel groggy because you've just accumulated metabolites that haven't been able to be washed away. Right. Um, so that's, that's epidermal cells. Uh, we've got uh, a- a microglia. Which is kind of... The best way to just to remember this, it's like an immune cell yeah. for the central nervous system. Yeah. So if there's infections or injuries, it will kind of come into the area. We've got astrocytes. So astrocytes are named because of their shape. They're shaped like a star. Um, they've got arms and legs, not not like our arms and legs. but Arms, legs, neck, <laughs> armpits. <laughs> they, 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 their arms can grab onto blood vessels. And their other projections go into like synapses. Why is it important that their arms grab onto blood vessels? Well, I was going to get to that, but they help so, to they help to. Form. I thought you were dropping hints for me to sort of you know carry through to ask you the the right questions. They, they help to create what we call the the barrier of the brain, the the blood brain. Well, barrier. we actually call it the blood brain barrier. <laughs> The BBB. Or the triple, or the triple B. Triple B, yeah. The BB King. So The BBBB King. This BB, is- BBB BB, BB King. This is, <laughs> this is um, a barrier that makes it- Barry? It kind of separates the central nervous system from the rest of the body. Yes. Which can be a good thing, but also can be a, um, a difficult thing if you're like a pharmacological scientist and you come up with a new drug yeah. that you want to get in the brain and- it's a great drug, yeah. but it doesn't get into the brain, so it's mm. it's non-successful. And the reason why we've evolved that is important because everything we ingest gets into the bloodstream, pretty much. And if it gets into the bloodstream, it means it gets to everywhere. It, it exposes all the tissues of the body, yeah. uh, including the brain, 
And if you've just inject, ingested something toxic, now obviously we haven't evolved to ingest pharmaceuticals per se, but we've evolved to ingest drugs of some sort and they may be beneficial or not uh, and they could be toxic or not or whatever it may be. But if they can cross the blood-brain barrier and damage the brain, it's not the very, brain's very sensitive. It's not a very good outcome. It's not a good outcome. Yeah. So luckily we've got astrocytes with their arms wrapping around the blood vessels of the central nervous system and they help limit their one of three or four barriers in the central nervous system that help protect the brain from what's floating around in the blood. Yep. Okay, so, so that's these, astrocytes. So these astrocytes, you know, they play also a big role in regulating what's at the synapse. So um, neurotransmitters and any other ions and so forth, it's important for conduction and um, communication. So they're important in that role. I, I call the astrocytes the um, – you know when you watch the car racing, the Formula One. Oh, like the pit stop. Yeah, the pit crew. The pit crew, where the car is the neuron, yeah. right? It does all it does seemingly all the work, but without the pit crew, it falls apart. Okay. And the same, and the pit crew with the and the microglia, the, the that safety car. <laughs> no, <laughs> microglia you know is a, once the yeah, once the race is over, it cl- clears the road. You know when there's a crash. Oh, yeah, it clears they, it all up. They bring out the safety car and then ah, to clean it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Okay, that's all right. Can we sort of uh, extend this analogy for all the other types of glia? What are the ependymal cells? Um, Fluid replenishment. Uh, don't know. I was going to say the um, – no, I'm done. <laughs> um, and the only other type of glia, and we're half an hour into the podcast, uh, are the satellite cells. So they're, they're more wrapped around the, the cell bodies in the peripheral nervous system. And so when there is potentially- uh, Sensory neurons specifically, right? Or DRGs. Yeah. Because the they're, they're, ganglia as well, they're Matt. outside. Matt just loves to throw out initialisms and without telling people what they stand for. So they are sensory um, cell bodies. Okay. The motor cell bodies are going in the ventral horn, which is central nervous system. Okay. Yep. Uh, is that all the, the nervous it. tissue? Nervous tissue done. So done. all those things we just mentioned um, play a role in essentially- the communication um, of the nervous system. Yeah, yeah. Next is muscle. Okay. Muscle is another tissue made up of myocytes. So unlike neurons where there's a whole bunch of different cells, muscles have muscle cells called myocytes. Uh, But you've got subsets of these like cardiomyocytes, for example, which are muscle cells within the heart. In actual fact, there's three different types of muscle in the body. So while you've got muscle as a tissue, there's three subtypes and those are cardiac muscle, skeletal muscle and smooth muscle. And so I think we should just talk very briefly about each of these and what they do. But generally muscle is there for movement. Yeah. Right. So muscle contracts. Yeah. So muscle's ability or muscle tissue's ability is to lengthen, stretch, but then contract, which is shorten, and depending on these three types, they will do that in different ways, right? So skeletal muscle, which are muscles that are attached to our bones, skeleton, are very powerful in contraction, very dynamic, yeah. very rapid. Um, cardiac's also powerful, but um, they're probably more in rhythm, right? Yes, and, and, and they're successful not due to their individual cells that contract but due to the group of cells that contract and right. smooth muscles like me uh weak slow but reliable yeah and found <laughs> in my digestive tract um yes absolutely and so 
the way I think about it is, like you said, all muscle cells need to contract and it's the shortening of these cells that then leads to something moving. And it depends on what they're attached to and their orientation that depends on what's happening. So in the skeletal muscle, they're going to be attached to the skeleton and therefore, when you via, short- via tendons, which we'll yep. get to, that's because that's connective tissue. Exactly. Okay. Uh, and it's attached to bones, which is also connective tissue, which we'll get to. But when that muscle shortens, it obviously will now muscles will attach to bones across a joint. Yeah. And so when a muscle shortens, it moves the bone across the joint, and it changes the angle of that bone and therefore movement occurs. Yeah. So skeletal muscle moves a skeleton. Super simple, simply by that contraction. So the orientation of the fibres are, are generally in long cylinders that That's are right. parallel to each other, right? Yes. So when they contract, they pull kind of in one Unidirection. direction. Yeah. Exactly. Unless it's a kind of a, a muscle that has branch points, but generally speaking, it's going to pull it in one but direction. But each one of those cells will pull unidirectionally. Yeah. Yeah. And so- you compare this to, let's compare this to smooth muscle, right? So smooth muscle lines our hollow organs. And so things like the digestive tract. It doesn't line. Well, it does. It, it, it's in the walls. Sure. Well, it depends on your li- definition of line. Because I think line is better to say, hollow organs are lined by epithelium. epithelium. Okay. Okay, fair. Um, it, it lines the internal walls of, so walls, of yeah. so our hollow structures. So walls, yeah. Yep. Um, like the digestive tract, the, the the renal system. Pick a hollow tube in the body and there's going to be a muscle layer within that hollow tube. Okay. And so these fibres are usually orientated um, lengthways down the tube and around the tube as well. And so we call it longitudinal or circular. circular. Right. And so the whole point of these two different types is that if you contract the longitudinal fibers that go the length of the tube, it shortens the tube. Yep. And then if you contract the circular muscles, it narrows the diameter. lumen or hollow inside or diameter of the tube. And if these two things happen together, what you end up getting is a shortening and narrowing and then an extension and um, dilation and and then they, it goes back and forth and that leads to kind of looks like a caterpillar walking. Yes, it pushes things through. It's similar to putting a tennis ball in a stocking and then using your hand to squeeze that tennis ball up the stocking, right? And this is how we push fecal material through our digestive tract, push urine out of our the tennis ball bladder. Uh, yeah, <laughs> with, with my hands and a, and a pair of stockings. Um, you know, so again, blood, moving through blood vessels and so forth, it's it's all because of this smooth muscle layer. Now that smooth muscle is- Ureter. Ure, um, I did say bi- that. Bile duct. And then if you have a stone in it- Yes, it contracts around that. And, it's and that's not nice. Apparently the most painful pain that you'll get. Well, as a male, I don't want to say because I've never given birth and neither of you. That's true. So it could be not as bad. But I have heard- Many females who have given birth that say a, a gallstone is worse, way worse. Okay, I'll leave that. I've have haven't experienced either, so I won't make a judgment there. Unlike you, so <laughs> so that that's now smooth muscle contracts unconsciously, involuntarily, yep. um, which is good because if and the, the fibres are perpendicular to each other, unlike parallel, like the skeletal. So they're going yes. in different directions. Yes, which is important because you need to contract around the object or thing that you're moving. And part of the reason for all their weird orientations is why they are not striated because they're not all lined up. So when yeah. you look down a microscope, 
they don't appear strided like skeletal or cardiac. They're smooth. And yeah. part of the reason is because they're all in different directions. And the, the, the all in different directions that Matt's referring to are the protein subunits that actually contract. So obviously if they're all lined up in, in, a, in a row, you can see that down a microscope and that leads to what's called striations mm. like tiger stripes. But if they're all in different directions, there's no consistent pattern yeah. to it and so we call it smooth. Um, skeletal muscle is conscious contraction. Yep. So anytime you voluntarily move something, you know it's skeletal muscle, right? And that includes the diaphragm. So I, a lot of students will say to me, is the diaphragm skeletal muscle or smooth muscle? But it's skeletal muscle because you can control its contraction consciously, yep. right? All right, so we've done skeletal, we've done smooth. Let's go to cardio. So cardiomyocytes, oh, cardiac myocytes. heart muscle cells. So they're different in, now again, muscles all con- muscle cells all contract with the purpose of something to move. Yep. In this case, it's blood that it wants to move. And so it needs to contract around the blood. So the heart is going to be surrounded by this muscle. It's going to- Muscle pump. Be filled. Yeah, it's a muscle pump. Um, But the power of it isn't in the individual muscle cell or fiber like it is with skeletal muscle. Mm. It's actually the group of muscle cells working together as something that we call a syncytium. Okay. And so the the way this works, unlike the other um, muscle cells, is that when you stimulate one muscle cell in the heart to contract – it actually is connected by these open doors to every other muscle cell in the heart and just propagates that signal to everyone. So when you stimulate one muscle cell, you stimulate all muscle cells. And that's the definition of a syncytium. So how does it do that? Uh, because there's these open doors. What are that, they called? Uh, they're called gap junctions. Okay. And so remember, any muscle cell they must contract by being depolarized, yep. which means you've got to throw positive things into it, whether it's sodium or calcium or whatever, or magnesium, whatever it may be, you've got to throw a, a positive ion in yep. and enough of it in to release calcium. Yep. And then once the calcium's released and you've got ATP present, the muscle will contract. Yeah. And so- for skeletal muscle, you can do this and only a single muscle cell will, can, will contract because there's no open doors that connects one muscle cell to the next to tell the next one to contract. You need an individual neuron to speak or an individual neuronal synapse yeah. to speak to it to, to do that, um, but not with heart muscle. You can have a single neuron synapsing with a single muscle cell and that can cause the whole heart to contract. Right. And this is one of the reasons why people can have what's called ectopic firing, yeah. where a part of the heart decides to- It has, to be, the, it has to, to be the fastest though, right? Sorry? It has to be the fastest. Because isn't it? Isn't the heart kind of the pace of the heart generated by the fastest um, depolarizing cell? So that's kind of where you can get these yes. irregular starting points where- Well, st- I, I wouldn't say the fastest. It's just because certain- uh, m- cardiomyocytes in the heart are a little bit different uh, and they spontaneously depolarize. So while other heart muscle cells need to be told to throw sodium in, Mm. right, to stimulate the the contraction, um, other ones, the door for sodium is always left open. And sodium and calcium leak in to to the cell. And so they're not necessarily the fastest, they're just always the first to depolarize because they always, they reach threshold first. Okay. Right. Um, and so they're called the pacemaker cells. Okay. So they're always depolarizing, repolarizing, depolarizing, repolarizing in a patterned way. But you can have some cells of the heart that decide to depolarize 
themselves due to whatever reason it may be. Um, and then that causes a, a part of the heart to start contracting before yeah, the, the pacemaker, pacemaker cells yeah, contract. Yeah. And then you're like- Then you get arrhythmias. That's right. You get arrhythmias. And then that's muscle cells, muscle tissue, I should say. Yeah. Okay. Now we're looking at the two that we haven't actually focused any time on yet, but we will do an individual podcast on each. And these are probably the most heavy going too, in a way. Yes. Well, they're most they're the most abundant, but also um, probably I think students probably find them the most difficult too, because it's easy to comprehend what neurons do and easy to comprehend what muscles do, but connective tissue. Because there's so many different types. A lot of variety. So firstly, let's define, what's, what is connective tissue, Matt? Well, I, I guess when you hear the term, you think it's to put things together. Yeah. But I don't think that does it justice because I think there's no. there's other stuff in there that does more than just connect. So for instance, you can have connective tissue that's structural, things like um, ligaments and cartilage and bone. But then you can have some that are immunological. Mm. So you've got a lot of your blood cells, particularly the white blood cells. But then you've also got red blood cells. I'm not sure how where you fit that into. Mm. Like a what do you what would you categorize that as as within the anyway? Uh, and then you've got energy things for energy. So you've got uh, fat, which is a type of connective tissue. Yeah, but it's kind of this place where you just store molecules for another day. Yes. So you've confused us even further. <laughs> but, but no, but that the point that you're all making those things is don't connect. They're not, they're not putting things together like, you know, say a tendon would yes. puts a muscle to a bone or a ligament puts bone to bone or bone even um, or cartilage between bones. But then you've got this fat which is mm. I mean it, I'm sure it plays in important connective roles in some areas. Well, this is the way I start all my lectures, by saying exactly what you say. So I go, it's easy to define neuron, uh, uh, nervous tissue. Yeah. It's easy to define muscle tissue. But connective tissue, it can be a solid. Yeah. It could be a semi-solid. It could be a liquid, yeah. you know, and they can all perform a different function. Yeah. So what the hell makes a connective tissue a connective tissue? And the thing is a couple of things. One, all connective tissue will wrap, bind or anchor. That's the first thing. That's a broad definition of what they do. But the other thing is that all connective tissues are made up of cells, gels, and fibers. Okay. Or to be more accurate, you could just say cells and extracellular matrix. Yes. Which is- But it's not as easy to remember. That's true. That's why I say cells, gels, and fibers, because it's sort of a little little rhyming scheme which students- But the cells are obviously, you know, uh, they're different. The gels- uh, are basically the extracellular matrix that the cells are embedded in and form the relative density of what that structure is. And the fibres are the things that are embedded in the extracellular matrix that will change the consistency of the um, tissue type as well. Yeah. So I always like to start with the cells. Okay. If that's okay. Yeah, go for it. Because, you know, you can have – so examples – that Matt highlighted before of, of connective tissue include bone, so that's a solid, cartilage, that's a semi-solid, and blood, which is a liquid, yep, right? Yep. But there's there's obviously other types, like and you alluded to, you know, tendons and things like that. Yep. Um, and fat, fatty tissue and so forth. So if you have bone, 
then you got to think of that Latin or Greek prefix like osteo. Yeah. So you've got an osteocyte. Yeah. So that's the cell type. Yep. Uh, at least the mature cell type for bone. Same for cartilage, chondrocyte. For fat, adipocyte. Uh, for blood, if I it's red blood. Of course you would. <laughs> you like to be contrarian. Uh, and uh, erythrocyte for red blood cells. Fibroblast. And fibroblasts. They're probably the well. most abundant. Yes. Yeah. Well, fibroblasts, yes, because they, they make up all of those – when you think connective tissue, you probably think fibroblasts, yeah. the things that actually connect, that, that anchor the organs together. You know, you cut into the abdomen, you, you tear it open, you have a look and you see the digestive system anchored to each other. That's going to be, you know, that dense, irregular connective tissue. Um, you know, their fibroblasts are the main cell types for these types. So there's the cells, right? at least the mature cells, and there's obviously variations. So if you take bone, for example, which is its own conversation, we've had a whole topic, a whole podcast on bone, you can have, you know, um, osteogenic cells, osteoblasts, osteocytes. I wouldn't include osteoclasts because it's a different, it's a whole different- Macrophage. It's a macrophage, so it's not really part of this. But Probably is though. Well, it's a whole different lineage. Yeah, yeah. While osteogenic cells are precursors to osteoblasts, which are precursors to osteocytes, but osteoclasts come in from elsewhere. Yeah. Well, that, but but they're probably a precursor from a you know an immune-like cell, which is still. They, they are. To yes, yeah. exactly right. So anyway, so they're the cells. But then you've also got the you know the hematopoietic stem cell, which is yes a blood-making cell in the bone as well, don't you? Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so they're the cells. Then when we look at the gels, which is the extracellular matrix, they're mainly just like proteins and sugars snapped yeah, together. Yeah, I think basically this is what is referred to as ground substance. Yes. And then most of that is um, water, mm. but then it has a few other additional things like protoglycans yep. and glycoproteins and stuff right. like that. They're the two major types, yeah. which always confuses students because you've got glycoproteins and proteoglycans, yeah. which is the, pretty much the same word just flipped. <laughs> um, but they are- And this is where you get things like the thought of glucosamide, right? Where yes. it, it has a, a property within ground substance, which is in a type of connected tissue like a cartilage, which is semi-solid. Mm. It's got a lot of fluid in it, but there's no necessarily reason for, well, if you ingest a whole lot of this property in a ground substance, then- Miraculously, your cartilages are going to rebuild. Yeah, similar to you know people taking collagen um, in their diet to think it's going to make their skin because you know there's collagen in your skin. Well, we'll get to collagen because that's part of the and, next part. But it doesn't necessarily work like that because you know you eat you eat collagen, which you know have in food, um, but it's a protein which you can't absorb collagen. Mm. You need to break it down into its building blocks, which is amino acids, mm. and then that's going to be put into your amino acid pool anyway, right? That's right. And then you, if you come to the point where you want to make collagen, it doesn't necessarily mean it comes from the collagen you ate. It's just going to be whatever the protein has been broken down from the amino acid. Yeah. So with, with the ground substance, um, like you said, proteoglycans, glycoprotein and so forth, the way you should think about them, or at least the way I think about it, is that they're sort of like the substrate that the next part we're going to talk about, which are the fibres, the substrate for them to sort of bind to, and help or lubricate even, um, or depending on what it is you're referring to. But if it's like bone and cartilage, for example, the ground substance allows for these fibers to sort of attach, right? Right, um, and so that's the so third. Is it, so is a ground substance in 
the bone, just the like the salt, the calcium. No, no. So you got salt? so when you look at bone, you've got the organics and the inorganics, yeah. and so the organics are going to be. Um, what the cells secrete. So the osteoblasts that are building the bone, they secrete ground substance and the fibres, right? So the Probably ground- collagen. So it's sort of like the way I, again, the way I think about it is the osteoblasts are the builder yeah. and they get the bricks out and they're the fibres and then they get the mortar out or the concrete out and that's the ground substance. And so they they- connect the bricks together by the ground substance. Okay. And that's and, and, and what they end up building is this wall, which is bone, right? Um, when we look at the move past the ground substance and look at the fibres, there's three major fibre types. And Matt spoke about one, which is the collagen, reticular fibres and elastic fibres. Right. And so collagen, uh, tough, tensile strength is how you should think about it. Elastic fibers, you can stretch it and it snaps back to its original position. And then reticular is like a network, a mesh sort of network. Yeah. And if you think about all the squishy organs of the body, they're going to be pretty much filled with reticular fibers. Yeah. So if you think of the hardest structures, they're going to have collagen. Like mm-hmm. bone and cartilage, just filled with collagen really. Um, there's going to be some cartilage with elastic tissue like your epiglottis and your ear and so forth, that's going to have a lot of elastic tissue. Um, uh, and then the reticular is going to be a lot of the dense, irregular, regular connective tissue um, of like the spleen and things like that. Lymph nodes. So think about if you were to get some jelly and you wanted to like aeroplane jelly and you want and you, and you make that jelly in a bowl and then you turn that bowl upside down and then you've got just this mound of jelly on a plate. Mm. If you were to pick that plate up and shake it, that jelly is going to wobble. And if you were to shake it significantly, it's going to fall apart. But if you were to get some little metal rods and embed it into the jelly while you're making it, which is going to be the collagen, mm. it's going to make it stronger, right? If you were to embed some elastic bands, which is the elastic fibers. I think that's like, yeah, you keep going. If you embed elastic fibers, it would allow for it to be able to wobble significantly, but it's not going to fall apart. It just goes back to its normal position. And if you were to embed things like feathers, for example, it's obviously going to change its structure as well. But that's what these fibers are doing. You embed them into the jelly or the ground substance to change its consistency. And if you embed a huge amount of collagen fibers, it becomes just really rigid and strong. Mm. Huge amount of elastic fibers, really stretchy. Huge amount of... um, reticular fibers, it becomes like a mesh work. Okay. And that's how I think about it. Yeah. Okay. Um, is there anything else in the connective tissue space that – an interesting side point is we've also got um, connective tissue that um, can be graded in embryology as well. So the these are called mesenchymal stem cells oh, yeah. or, me- or mesenchymal tissue and they come from the part of the, the embryo called the mesoderm. And so a lot of the connective tissue of the body comes out of this layer of the embryo. But interestingly, when we look at these cells in their early undifferentiated state, um, they have the ability to, to go down lineages depending on their physical environment. So if you – and we did, we did a bit of this in our research where if you were to get a, a mesochymal stem cell or a kind of a precursor connective tissue and then put it under kind of tensile – strain where you kind of it's grown on a petri dish but then you stretch it in a particular cyclic way 
it can kind of start differentiating to become like um, tendons or oh, ligaments. So the physical environment, yeah. not only because sometimes when we think of embryology, we think it's all, growth the, factors it's all the chemicals and growth factors, but changing the physical environment can also have That's an effect on the way the cell differentiates. That is actually very cool. Or even if you fl- kind of throw fluid past it, so you have shear stress, it comes more like endothelial tissue, which is what lines blood vessels. That's very interesting. And I think when we look at that, you know, the cells that develop primarily from that mesenchyme that you were talking about, um, they usually develop five types of mature connective tissue, which is what we call loose connective tissue, dense connective tissue, cartilage, bone, and liquid connective tissues. And that's the blood and lymph, Mm. right? So they're the five major types of connective tissue. We haven't really spoken about you know, loose connective tissue or anything like that. But I think... Um, so that is, is loose, you would classify cartilage and fat kind of in there? Uh, areola, and, areola and fat okay. mainly. Um, so uh, areola is one of the most widely distributed connective tissues. So it's obviously going to have collagen, elastic, reticular, you know, arranged in... We didn't talk about the arrangements of those fibres either because, for example, bone will have collagen arranged in a in a linear way, but cartilage, it's arranged in an irregular yep. way. Um, so, for example, the, the loose connective tissues, like that areola connective tissue I was saying, it's pretty much in and around, like, every body structure. It's like the packing material of the body. That's the, that's the areola connective tissue. Adipose is obviously the fat tissue... Um, that's Areola there. tissue would be if you if you eat chicken, you know when you um, take the skin off from the muscle, yep. that kind of spider-like yeah. um, connective tissue that kind of holds it together. Yes, yes. That, that would be a, an example of areola tissue. Yeah. Kind of the, you know, submucosal or dermis kind of connected in the epidermis, which is going to be um, epithelial tissue, which we'll talk about in a second, into the next layer and that areola tissue is kind of that connective tissue layer. Yeah, in the hypodermis. Yeah. yeah. So of loose connective tissues, you've got areola, you've got adipose, and you've got reticular. So the adipose is fat, and it's there for energy storage, but also uh, to protect things as well. Um, and then the reticular is what we were saying before. So um, that fine interlocking or interlacing network um, filled with those reticular fibers. So um, think of like the liver, the spleen, the lymph nodes, for example, that's reticular connective tissue. So that's all under the loose connective tissue banner. Um, look at banner, Michael. And then we've got the dense connective tissues, which we hadn't spoken about either. So, so that's got a lot of fibers in it, less ground substance. Exactly right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So, and there, oh, there's so many different types of these. So you've got dense regular connective tissue, you've got dense irregular connective tissue, you've got elastic connective tissue, for example. So there's heaps of different types. Should we go through? No, I think that's... We, when we do connective tissue on its own, we can go through the okay, great. nuance. Good, good, good. Um, so yeah, that's basically connective tissue. So this leads us to our last one, which is the, the fourth and final, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean you would do this one fourth. No. I usually do this one first, to be honest. Oh, I'm so sorry. So mate. this is epithelial tissue. So this is the one that has the most cells in it out of the th- four of them. Um, how do you want to classify this? Do you want to, so we sometimes classify this or categorize it by the way that it looks? Uh, so I like shape. to do it by shape and layer. Okay. So, so first start with shape. 
So this would be this. Well, first let's define it. Let's define where you find epithelial tissue and general characteristics of it. Okay. So epithelium, the, the term means upon nipple. That's what it actually means in definition. Let's not get rude here, Matt. I'm not sure what that actually means. Mm. I'm not sure where they got that from. No. I probably should have checked it actually. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. that's the epi- uh, epi- no, what an epi- uh What's the, the word that means derived from? Um, eponym. Eponym. No. Etymology. Yeah. So that's what it means, but I really should have checked what, what it actually, the definition. Well, you haven't just let yourself no, down, Matt. You've let us all down. Everyone. So epithelial tissue is generally uh, forms barriers. So it, it, it's, it makes the outside of you. So that's going to be your skin. So I'm looking at your epithelium right yeah. now. Although what you look at is everything's dead. How dare you? <laughs> so even though you look at my skin, it, it's it's cells that have died. I didn't want to say anything, but I can <laughs> tell. So um, it, it's the body surfaces. It lines the- So you're ca- not just dead inside. <laughs> you're also <laughs> dead outside. It lines cavities. So if you were to, like you were saying earlier, if you were to cut through and go into the abdomen- what lines the whole abdominal cavity would be epithelial tissue or the pleural cavity or the pericardial cavities would be epithelial tissue. What makes glands? So these are secretory organs. That's this is a Jeopardy question. What this makes glands? Beep. Epithelial tissue. I wish we had a buzzer. No, we don't. All receptors. So this would be- Really? Interestingly part of the nervous, nervous system- but you know, um, what other what what are the things that transduce vision into kind of electrical activity? It's the the rods and cones, and they're epithelial. They're epithelial. Oh, okay. Or um, taste, or the kind of cells with hairs on it in your cochlea, Whoa. or the proprioceptors receptors in you know joints or skin mm. that pick up vibration, but they kind of do their thing and then they change that kind of physicality into helping the juice into the, the electrical electrochemical. All right. So you're saying that epithelia separates boundaries of the body. That's how I see it. So anytime there's a cavity, it's lined by epithelia. So that might be the inside of your blood vessels or heart or plural cavity or anywhere. Mm where you need to go from one environment to another, it's always going to be lined by epithelia. And that includes the external to the internal environment, hence why your skin is lined by epithelia because it's separating out barriers of your body. Mm. And the outer layer is dead. You said that, right? Makes sense. Well, the epidermis is what we're referring to here. Okay. The bottom layer of the epidermis is kind of – well and truly alive. But now we're talking specifically skin, not just epithelia. So the skin has epithelial cells. Well, I just said said epidermis, which is part of the skin, but the epidermis pretty much is all uh, epithelial tissue. There's there's a few exceptions. But um, where these new cells are made is at the basal layer, and as they move up this epidermis, they die. And that's what you're seeing there. So when we look at epithelial cells, they're really tightly packed. There's not much space between the cells, unlike connective tissue, where you could have like a bone cell, like an osteocyte, 
and the distance between it and another osteocyte could be significant. Mm. So there's heaps of space in between for that ground substance and fibres. But here it's not the case. It's just a cell connected to another cell connected to another cell and they're really tightly packed and there's no room for you know uh, yeah, intercellular space. There's and usually there's, three surfaces that we look at that we have. The, I said, one second. And there's no room for blood vessels oh, yeah, So they're so avascular. avascular. Yeah. Now let's talk about those the, the surfaces. So the surfaces of these epithelial cells, because they're usually in a in a plate of cells, um, there's the bottom layer. What do you mean a plate of cells? So um, I want to describe this. Well, I think just like if you were to um, take a couple of Lego blocks on a table and let's just say you wanted to make, you got a couple of Lego blocks and you made it three Lego blocks high on the table and five Lego blocks wide. Yeah, just – you just line them up next to each other in a big yep. long line. So three high, five wide. Yep. Yep. The very top of that, what's that surface called? The one that's exposed to the atmosphere or the yeah, the, the one cavity. that's higher up is called the apical layer. Yep. And, and that in many cases has unique features on it for its function, which we'll get to. Then you have the basal layer, which is at the bottom. The ones attached to the table. And that's, yeah, and that's usually a attached to the basement membrane, which is kind of the- going, Connective tissue. Going into connective tissue, that's right. And then you have the lateral surfaces is where it's bound to its neighbour. And like you said, it's usually very tight to hold it together, but also probably to stop things going between them yes. or at least limit it. Yeah. Yep. So that's the three surfaces. Okay. And then the way we would kind of categorise is their appearance. So- if we would first look at their morphology, their shape, and there's three kind of ways we would categorise the shape of the epithelial tissue. There's squamous, which is just flat. They're being squashed, so they'll almost look like they're being run over by a truck. Yeah. Um, there's cuboidal, shaped like a square. Cube. And then there's columnar, which is long and slender. Like a column. Like a column. Now, squamous, squished, cuboidal, cube, columnar, column. Usually speaking, their shape will have an effect on their function. So yes. the flat ones, because it's such a small diameter, not a diameter. What's it's squished. There's, there's nothing inside. There's not much so there. The, the internal. It, it means, this is not always the case, but it makes it very easy for things to go across it, mm. which we call diffusion. Mm. So things can cross it very easy. An example would be, the um, type 1 pneumocytes in your lung or your alveoli are a squamous cell and they're very thin, flat, which allows oxygen to cross very easy and to go into blood and carbon dioxide to come out of the blood to cross um, the alveolus to be breathed out. So that's yeah. nice for diffusion. And, and it's squished so it doesn't have any intracellular organelles or compartments yeah. or anything like that because it's dead, it's squished, and it wants things to get through. So what's the easiest way to get things through? Let's l limit the volume or, or the, the distance which something needs to travel. Yep. But then that brings us to the next two, like the cuboidal. Cuboidal. What, what does that tell you? If it's shaped like a cube, it's got a significant it's amount of- It's got more organelles in it. That's right. So which, it's going to be doing stuff and yeah. producing stuff. And some examples would be secreting things yep. or increasing the ability to absorb things. Yep. Okay, and sometimes through absorption- Or both. These cells can add additional um, appendices. Appendages? 
appendages. Appendages. Which is kind of projections on Cilia it. Cilia or villi. Yeah, or, or microvilli, which are kind so of these, microvilli, yeah. these things that just increase surface area. So you might see this, for instance, well, the columnar ones are usually ones you find in the gut and they increase yeah. the surface area. Yeah, so I always think because the cuboidal and the columnar have quite a large intracellular area, the organelles are doing stuff and that's producing maybe enzymes or mucus ready for secretion. Yeah. So anytime you see a part of the body that's got cuboidal or columnar, think they're going to be secreting something. Um, if they've got microvilli, which are fingertip-like projections on their surface, they're increasing their surface area. So that's there for absorption. So they also want to absorb something as well. Yep. yep. Um, I made the mistake of saying villi, and the difference is that microvilli are the projections on the on the apical surface of epithelia, but villi are simply epithelia themselves in, in, projecting in, out. in kind of valleys and waves. And exactly. Exactly. So that's simply just by shape, but yep. we haven't spoken about how many layers they yeah. can have. So they could be one layer or many layers, right? So if it's one layer, it's simple. And an, again, example would be the alveoli yeah. cells. Oh, yes, yes. Sorry. So that's a simple squamous cell. Yeah. So simple means one layer. Yeah. And that's right. usually there for that diffusion. That'd be a perfect cell for diffusion. But then you can stack them on top of each other like the Lego box and you can put squamous on top of squamous on top of squamous and that would be the epidermis on the skin. Like creating and a brick wall. Like a brick wall. And that's going to be not so good for diffusion but good for protection. It makes total sense. You look at it and you go, oh, it's one squish layer. Things will easily get through that. Oh, that's exactly why it's there. So yeah. things can easily get through, like you said, like gases. And you go, oh, many layers of dead cells of, that are squished why is that? Well, it doesn't want things to get through because there's heaps of layers, but they're also dead and squished. So it doesn't matter if they get damaged and sloughed off and, you know, moved away. So it's there for areas of abrasion, like you said, yeah. like an epidermis. The, the and to add to that, we could, we, could, we could use in that protection layer because there's a lot of abrasion. You could add um, a protein to it, which we call keratin, and that can help with waterproofing. Yeah. And so with these protective layers where you get a lot of abrasion, your skin, they usually chuck keratin in it because you want to make your skin a bit waterproof. But you also get abrasion areas, say, in your mouth or your esophagus or the anus. And that's also got these stratified squamous, but they're always in water, so there's no point waterproofing them. Mm. So these are what we call non-keratinized Stratified squamous. There you go. So it's still there for abrasion. So you're going to, especially you, you eat a lot of food that you don't chew. So Oh, says you, Mr. <laughs> Duck. <laughs> so you're going to lose a lot of cell layers. So you yep. want to be able to replace them quickly. Yeah. So the non-keratinized stratified squamous would be mouth, top of esophagus, and then the- um, All right. So give us some others. Give us some other types. So the, you've got, so that you've said squamous is- uh, sorry, simple is one layer, stratified is many layers. Yeah. Um, and, and we've given an example of simple squamous and stratified squamous. What are some other examples of epithelia and where we can find them? Again, form equals function. Oh, okay, so um, you could have um, cuboidal layers that, like you said, secrete things. So um, enzymes or hormones. Um, a good, are they a simple a, layer or a, they... Stratified. A good a good example for this layer a good for this location would be the pancreas, um, secreting enzymes into ducts. Um, I believe they're simple cuboidal, right? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of. I should really know this. Um, there's an interesting. There's an interesting organ 
the urinary bladder yeah. that um, has a cell called uh, or transitional. Cell transitional. So, so when the bladder is empty, they're probably more cuboidal or columnar shaped. But as the bladder fills and stretches and stretches and stretches, it changes the morphology mm. into a, a squamous more. Yeah, well, generally appearance. the apical surface is squamous and as you move down to the basals, it goes to more cuboidal than columnar. And the changes in the cell shapes means that it itself can change shape as a whole tissue and distend and snap back like the bladder needs to, right, when, yeah. it, when it overfills. An you can also have – sorry, an, an, an interesting side one, which is a unique one, is what we call a pseudostratified Oh, that's epithelium. what I was going to say. And that looks like it should be stratified, but it's the way that the cells are actually um, positioned that they, they're kind of squashed in different ways. And if you look down a microscope, it kind of looks like they're stratified, but in fact they're only one layer thick. Yeah. And examples as the ciliated – is that how you pronounce that's it? Ciliated, not oh, ciliated. Yeah, but I, you know how I pronounce things. That's um, true. Pseudostratified <laughs> epithelium. Would you find, you know, in your respiratory tract, the top yes. of your respiratory tract, which yes. is important for um, things that shouldn't be in the air that you breathe, like pollen or dust or bacteria, it gets stuck and they have cilia, which push it upwards into your pharynx and then you swallow or, in your case, spit it out in the ground. So... <laughs> So when we, when, when we get an exam in front of us and we see, you know, a question that says form equals function, where would you expect to find the following epithelia? Yep. It's pretty easy to do now. Simple, one layer. Things can get through if it's squished. If it's not, it's got intracellular compartment to be able to produce stuff, so secrete. If it's going to have microvilli, it's increasing surface area, there for absorption. If it's cilia, they move like a motor like, and they can beat and push things across. Um, uh, and you can even say like pseudostratified ciliated epithelia um, or pseudostratified ciliated columnar epithelia. You can go, well, I know what that is now, right? So Increase absorption. Uh, well, it helps to throw things across. Oh, sorry, I and. I secrete. Thinking, I was thinking the microvilli one. A lot of pseudostratified tissue, so you might be asking what's the benefit of that. A lot of pseudostratified tissue produces mucus. Um, so just know does that. It, does it produce it or is it the cell? Well, the, gob- the goblet. goblet cells that are dispersed between them have the space and room to be able to do that. So um, pseudostratified often has goblet cells dispersed for mucus secretion. And I think that's it, right? Well, I've drank a whole bottle of water before this podcast, so I need to go and urinate. So my bladder would be fully distended. Distended, so it would be yes. in its kind of squamous You know what we could state. think about? We could say, okay, before you do that, what tissues are going to be utilised for you to empty that bladder? So you've got nervous innovation. Which is telling me that I need to go to the bathroom. Yeah. So it's firing at the moment going toilet, pee, pee, toilet, pee. toilet. Okay. And you've so got- the, the bladder is kind of a, an organ with a, a whole lot of muscle and it's it's like a it's, it's like a muscular pouch which was my nickname <laughs> in gonna, high school I was going to say urine bag of it <laughs> okay yeah pee bag so you got muscle like the detrusor muscle so that would be bladder. smooth muscle smooth muscle ready to contract to help push this urine out yep. then you've got the epithelial line in the inside which is going to be that transitional to help it distend uh, and then connective tissue is going to be oh, well, it's, in, it's interspersed but there's also connective tissue on the outside which is the serosa to allow the organ to move 
in the the pelvis without causing friction. So what we've highlighted, but also now, you've got um, um, and this is interesting. Well, I think it well, is. We'll be the judge. Um, different the different nerves that innervate the bladder. So at the moment, I'm probably sitting in a, a parasympathetic state, and the parasympathetic nervous system. What it would do is it would um, cause the contraction for a lot of the detrusor muscle, but at the same time relax the sphincters of the um, the pelvic <laughs> the pelvic yeah, super floor, interesting the pelvic floor. But if you had a sympathetic reaction, but this is interesting because it kind of goes here we against, go, everyone. But if you sit back, te- technically, if you had a sympathetic reaction, which is a fight and flight, yeah, what it should do is it should clamp the sphincter closed. That's the way to explain it. And it should actually relax the neck of the bladder. Right. Okay. And you should hold on to it because, you know, you run away from bear. Wouldn't relaxing the neck of the or, bladder increase the amount of urine coming out of the bladder? No, I think it just re- takes the, the tension off. Okay. But as you probably heard, when you get um, scared, no. scared- I or, urinate yeah, myself. Yeah. You urinate yourself. So how does that work? If you're having a fight and flight- mm. It's a rebound effect, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's you have a very quick transient parasympathetic response. I think it's a sympathetic rebound because I think what happens is, and this is an oversimplification, is that if you have this acute sympathetic response that your parasympathetic nervous system tries to uh, counteract it and tries to respond itself to try and balance it out. Right. And then that can result in you either defecating or urinating yourself. Yeah. And for you, unfortunately, it's both. Um <laughs> At the same hole, the cloaca, generally, <laughs> like most that, turtles and birds. That's, that's great. You've, gra- you've listened to my comparative anatomy and embryology. Well yes, done. which is a good place to finish, yeah. which is Matt's cloaca. So uh, <laughs> hopefully everybody enjoyed our four tissues. It was meant to be 30 minutes, a um, little bit over. That's okay. I think It was we, interesting. It was a lot of digression. But, yes. But great. That's what podcasts are about, yeah. mate. Uh, everyone, thank you so much for joining us. I'm Dr. Mike Todorovich, joined by whoever this guy is, and which is Dr. Matt Barton. I'm and off can, to the bathroom. Great. Well, you can contact us uh, once Matt's finished at the bathroom, of course, uh, via email, gubiosciences at gmail.com, or you can watch our YouTube channel with over 500 free videos helping you pass your exams. Is that actually true? Yeah, over 500. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, we're very good and prolific. Um, and you can contact me on social media. I'm on all the good platforms. Um, you decide what those ones are at Dr. Mike Todorovic at D R M I K E T O D O R O V I C. We have a monthly newsletter that we are beginning. Woohoo! So if you want to visit our website, Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike, no, wait a minute. It's just Dr. Matt, Dr. Mike.com.au. The website? That's the website. Dr. Matt, Dr. Mike.com.au. Dr. Bean DR. Uh, if you go to the website, it will then ask you uh, to sign up to our newsletter. And every month we will give you updates as to when a new podcast is out, when a new video is out, and we'll have a little bit of uh, some helpful tips on how to study, prepare for exams, how to remember things, and also just general info on how the body works. So feel free to sign up and we'll speak soon. Bye. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.